You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. I have with me in the studio Professor Richard Day, who's Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at the University of New South Wales in Australia, as well as a rheumatologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Rick, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you, Mabel. Rick, you're here to talk to us about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and how best to use them. So we now know that we have uh, two categories of drugs, the the newer selective COX-2 inhibitors, as well as the older non-selective non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which for the sake of brevity we'll call non-selective NSAIDs. The latter are still very widely used, of course, and are available readily over the counter. How well do non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as a group work? The effect of these drugs is really uh, quite uh, variable depending on the type of pain and inflammation we're talking about. If you use a a drug like uh, uh, ibuprofen or naproxen for uh, acute pains, headaches, period pain in particular, uh, they're very effective. Once the pain pain becomes more chronic, um, particularly the most common forms of uh, arthritis, such as osteoarthritis, their effectiveness is uh, certainly not as dramatic or as um, sustained as uh, you see with the the, the shorter-term acute pains. But there's no question that there is um, benefit, particularly if there's inflammation involved, so that the inflammatory conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, there is a quite a positive effect on on the pain uh, associated with that and the stiffness. I guess the thing with the osteoarthritis, which is the common uh, commonest use of these drugs in the rheumatic diseases, is that the effect size is not dramatic. And that's why we recommend in all guideline groups that for the common uh, osteoarthritic conditions that uh, paracetamol in full dose is used first. The advantage being that uh, some of the classic uh, concerns with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, such as ibuprofen or diclofenac, are that the um, gastrointestinal side effects are, are much less, um, and gastric ulcers really are uh, hardly recorded as a as a problem with paracetamol. Okay, so uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, good for acute pain, especially when there's inflammation, and a lot of people take take these too for dysmenorrhea. Um, not so good for osteoarthritis, where drugs like paracetamol might have a, a bigger role. Yes, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have been used heavily um, by prescribers uh, for, for many decades, um, and, and data like... Uh, 15 to 20% of over 65-year-olds have been taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have been published for uh, quite a long time. It's probably a little less these days, but but really a significant proportion of the population. And we do know that the um, benefits of paracetamol have been underrated, and there's been a very big effort to um, educate prescribers and patients that uh, paracetamol if taken in a full dose uh, regularly, uh, can be very helpful and might obviate the need to take um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, the, pro- the problem with um, osteoarthritis of uh, knees and hips, for example, is that it afflicts older people, and uh, older people are more susceptible to the negative effects of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory group, and the risk 
of um, serious gastrointestinal effect increases probably exponentially above the ages of uh, age of about 65, 70. We'd be anxious about that. The older the patient gets, particularly if they've had an ulcer before, or they're taking a um, an anticoagulant, or, or uh, are otherwise unwell with cardiac failure or, or uh, renal impairment, and the NSAIDs have been reached for probably a bit too enthusiastically. Your article also outlines uh, alternative treatments for uh, pain relief in chronic problems such as osteoarthritis. Would you like to outline those very quickly? Yes. One of the things that's overlooked, uh, underrated, is the um, the physical approaches to uh, osteoarthritis, particularly the weight-bearing joints. And that's very important because level one evidence uh, indicates that uh, weight loss, and it doesn't have to be huge exercises that uh, improve muscle strength around joints, are, are extremely effective with uh, effect sizes that are equivalent to uh, the drugs we're talking about or, or better. But if that's not enough, and oftentimes it is enough, paracetamol, uh, as we've discussed, but probably the next step, which is well worth considering, particularly if there are a limited number of joints involved, maybe particularly if it's also the hand joints, is the use of topical uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. They are proven to be effective. Because the symptoms of these conditions fluctuate, uh, the need to actually apply the topical NSAID uh, really matches the pain of the uh, and stiffness of the of the joint, which is not always the case with the oral intake of um, NSAIDs. So you've discussed the gastrointestinal adverse effects uh, already. Um, your article also mentions the role of adding a proton pump inhibitor to NSAIDs if they're absolutely uh, necessary. There's no question that the um, risk of peptic ulcer and its bleeding and perforation is reduced with a concomitant uh, proton pump inhibitor. The H2 antagonists are not as effective unless the dose is really very high, uh, so it's a much uh, easier option to use a proton pump inhibitor. If the risk of GI ulceration is high, and that would be in an older person with a previous episode of ulceration, uh, perhaps, uh, then a proton pump inhibitor actually is a very useful thing to do and it's cost effective. The other difficult thing about this is that um, often the bleeding and perforation is not heralded by symptoms. So dyspepsia, uh, indigestion, if you like, is quite common with these drugs, but it doesn't correlate awfully well with the risk of um, perforation or bleeding. So uh, out of the blue, uh, someone can have a bleed um, the matter of how much NSAID you use in these situations as well is important because there is a relationship between how much is used and the risk of gastrointestinal adverse effects and also the cardiovascular effects. The guidance here is to use the lowest dose that um, does the job reasonably and really uh, not to persist if it didn't seem to be necessary. There's no doubt that there's a creep from the low dose to the high dose in osteoarthritis and this relates to patient symptoms not being controlled completely, and that's you know, quite understandable. But the actual benefit from the increase in dose is probably pretty marginal for lots of people. So it's worth testing whether it really made a lot of difference to go to a higher dose. And if it didn't, then backing off to 
the lowest dose that uh, seems to be reasonable. Mm, and obviously ensure the low dose did do something in the first place anyway. And your other point that you made, obviously, uh, that's a very important one, was not to wait for symptoms before prescribing uh, proton pump inhibitors, but to co-prescribe from the start, just because the bleeding can, as you say, come out of the blue. Uh, exactly. The, the other uh, point is that with the gastrointestinal effects of these drugs can be the whole length of the gastrointestinal tract. The, the most dramatic and well-known are the upper GI effects, but the small intestines affected as well often asymptomatically, so that anemia might be the uh, first sign of this, and of course that can be subtle. So it's worth actually, um, if there's any suspicion, checking the haemoglobin, along with some of the cardiovascular measures such as blood pressure, and but also renal function, again particularly in the older patient, and also um, patients with any um, impairments of any of those organs, the heart or the, or, or the, or the kidney. Can you just say a quick word about um, COX-2 inhibitors and the gastrointestinal in effects? Just because when the COX-2 inhibitors were first introduced, a great marketing ploy was to tell us that the gastrointestinal effects were minimal and that was their niche in the market. Yes, the rationale for in introducing the COX-2 inhibitors was that uh, the gastrointestinal effects would be less, and they certainly were, but they certainly weren't eliminating the gastrointestinal adverse effects. So particularly if you look at things like dyspepsia, so I think the best attitude is to feel that you're reducing the risk but you're not eliminating it. The cardiovascular adverse effects of NSAIDs have uh, received a lot of press in, in the last few years. Um, particularly their effects on, on arterial thrombosis, myocardial infarction and, and stroke. Tell us a little more about these risks and whether the non-selective NSAIDs are really any safer than the COX-2 inhibitors in this regard. Yes, look, the risks of uh, this class of drugs for cardiovascular adverse effects is real. This became apparent uh, when we looked at the new COXIBs in uh, large trials compared against uh, conventional um, uh, non-selective NSAIDs, but it also became apparent that not only were the new COX-2 selective drugs associated with risks, but the old non-selective drugs were also. And we have now got a bit of an idea about the size of those risks. They're not large, but uh, given the numbers of people exposed to these drugs, uh, it is significant. And it's important to keep in mind that the bigger the dose, the greater is the risk and that, that this uh, risk operates on the background risk for cardiovascular adverse events that uh, your patient might have. So roughly speaking, if you think about uh, COX-2 selective drugs, and actually included in this is diclofenac, the non-selective drug, uh, that the ratio uh, or risk ratio is about twofold or approaching twofold. So if we had a 1,000 patients taking um, an NSAID for one year, uh, we would find that three of those would have a cardiovascular adverse effect more than they would have had if they hadn't been taking this drug, and, and one of those would be fatal. So it's not a huge risk, but it uh, is significant. And to keep in mind that uh, as the dose of these drugs increases, um, so does the risk, so lower doses are better. Um, and uh, also that the higher the background risk is, 
um, the greater the effect of this risk actually is. Now, now we've also learned that uh, amongst the non-selective NSAIDs, naproxen keeps on emerging from all the studies, the meta-analyses, the high-dose studies, the observational studies, as being the safest when it comes to cardiovascular adverse effects. We shouldn't think of it as being absolutely safe, uh, but again, uh, low doses of naproxen seem to be uh, reasonable if people have a cardiovascular risk. Uh, we've also learnt that diclofenac uh, seems to be about as risky as the COX-2 selective drugs. Uh, the data on ibuprofen is a bit more equivocal, but as the dose gets higher, the risk appears to increase. So again, low doses are really what we ought to be aiming for. But one of the important things is that if there is a true cardiovascular risk, particularly if there's been a previous cardiovascular event, so we're talking about secondary prevention, then uh, low-dose aspirin uh, is to be continued, should be being used, and it ought to be continued in these patients. So you've mentioned aspirin. Let's talk now about interactions with aspirin because uh, many patients will be taking those for uh, secondary prevention of cardiovascular events. The uh, first important point is that if aspirin is being given for a good reason, secondary prevention... Um, of uh, a cardiovascular event such as a heart attack, it should be continued. The problem is that uh, most uh, non-selective NSAIDs block the effect of aspirin on platelets unless there's a big separation between the intake of the NSAID and the aspirin. Now, there's one NSAID which doesn't block this interaction of the aspirin and the platelet, and that's diclofenac. The problem there is that it has a tendency to have a little bit more of a cardiovascular risk in its own right, so that uh, that balance has to be uh, considered by the prescriber. Uh, the other option is to use a selective COX-2 inhibitor because they don't block the effects of um, low-dose aspirin. So that certainly might be used, but we still have the concern that the um, selective COX-2 inhibitor has its own risk of um, a cardiovascular event, myocardial infarction. So again, the balance has to be considered. And what about ACE inhibitors? There is a an enhanced risk, particularly if the person has a renal impairment, cardiac failure, that um, th there is an interaction. So that there can be a, a, a dangerous elevation of the uh, potassium level in that situation so that it's very important to be careful. Now, the drugs can be used together, but, it, but, but, but you'd be checking the electrolytes, which you probably ought to do in an older patient a couple of weeks after you commenced an NSAID. And again, uh, to the point, you'd be doing everything else you could to try to avoid the NSAIDs, that is the physical program, the paracetamol, the topical NSAID, um, uh, and limiting the dose, uh, if you can, stopping the drug if it didn't seem to be as necessary. But if you were really locked into using the drug, um, uh, having a look at the electrolytes after a short while, perhaps even weighing the patient to make sure their cardiac failure hasn't got worse, um, uh, checking renal function, uh, checking the urine. Uh, these are simple clinical things that one would do. The more worried you were, you might do it a little sooner after a couple of weeks. Um, and, and certainly every now and again. There are concerns, of course, with using anti-inflammatories in asthma. 
should we be prescribing anti-inflammatories at all to patients with asthma? Yes, look, we certainly can. I mean, asthma is prevalent, and um, uh, but we do know that some asthma is worsened uh, by this class of drugs, and uh, often aspirin is the index, so aspirin-induced asthma. Those would be the people we'd be a little bit more concerned about with any NSAID. Um, it is uh, then the possibility of using the uh, selective COX-2 inhibitor, such as celecoxib, um, atoricoxib, uh, they have uh, little or no uh, as- asthma um, exacerbating or inducing effect, although it has been reported, so you'd still be very careful when you first use the drug. And what about its use in pregnancy? Because there are some concerns, there are some concerns about its effects there. At the implantation stage, which involves a little bit of inflammation, there is a a view that um, NSAIDs might make this more difficult. And certainly during the first trimester, um, there is an odds ratio that's reported of over two um, for abortion in the first trimester, so really to be avoided there. Um, in the last trimester, um, or not in the last, in the last trimester, I guess the uh, uh, delaying labour is one of the issues. And the other is the uh, closing of the, uh, patent, uh, of the patent ductus. Uh, and closing that prematurely. So these are reasons to avoid these drugs uh, beginning and end of pregnancy at least. I think most pregnant patients try to avoid them uh, really throughout the pregnancy and that's probably a a good way to proceed uh, using alternatives would be uh, better. Mm. Okay, Rick, thank you for that interesting discussion of the controversies around using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Thanks very much, Mabel, and uh, nice to talk to you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.